Previously, on The Secret Life of Death, Episode 6, Awe, Part 2. We discussed the evolution of gravestone art and symbology in New England at the turn of the 19th century, and how it reflected the social, cultural, and spiritual changes in post-revolution America. After the deprivations and horrors of war, many were eager to embrace community and connection, but on their terms, with a more personal, individual relationship with God. These new spiritual ideas and identities ushered in novel cultural and stylistic changes, resulting in a profusion of gravestone motif design by 1800. But, as life stabilized, standardized, and industrialized, so too did artistic impression in gravestone art. By 1820, most, if not all, gravestone design took the form of the willow in urn. At the end of our last show, we were still left wondering how the broken willow, soul effigy moon, and stars motif on Relief Wilcox Town's gravestone in Halifax, Vermont, fit into all of this. While the elements of the design are not uncommon, their layout is very unique and sophisticated. So unique and sophisticated, you'd think that surely whoever carved this stone must be well-known and easy to identify. Yeah, you'd think. I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 6, Awe, Part 3. Now, don't get me wrong. The motif designs on gravestones are a fascinating window into the life and times of the person they were made to commemorate. But we shouldn't be so quick to overlook the actual gravestone inscriptions themselves, because just beyond their name, date of, and age at death, there are hidden social and cultural clues there. And you'll be surprised to find that what wasn't inscribed on a gravestone can be just as revealing as what was. The main body of the gravestone, or the tablet, contained the epitaph. In its basic form, epitaphs include the biographical information about the decedent, name, date of, and age at death. Sometimes that's all you get. But most of the time, especially with gravestones from the turn of the 19th century, the epitaph is where you strike all kinds of cultural gold. We're talking personal, sometimes graphic, and often just weird. As I said, the standard format for an epitaph gives you their name, date of, and age at death. John Ellis died April 13, 1837, aged 82 years. That information is situated within the top section of the tablet space of the stone. Then there's another section on the tablet at the bottom, reserved for any extras the family wished to include. Sometimes this is left blank, and other times it included a verse of poetry or a quote from the Bible, 
referencing both personal and general sentiments about life and death. How loved, how valued once was he, but now avails us not. Affliction for a long time I bore, physicians were in vain. But death gave me ease when God was pleased to ease me of my pain. Lest not ye dead forgotten lie, lest we forget, we must die. And our subject, Relief Wilcox Town, had such an inscription at the bottom of her gravestone. Taken from the Book of Psalms, chapter 91, verse 7. My God, his chosen people saves, amongst the dead, amidst the graves. These verses were meant to provide those visiting the cemetery lessons in virtue and opportunities for contemplation of mortality. Sounds like a good time to me. But apart from the reminders of guilt and morality, these epitaphs do tell us very specific things about a person's life and status at the time of their death. And beyond the rundown of general information, there is often a notable tidbit about their social rank tucked in there. Epitaphs became a space in which men, as this was strictly a patriarchal society, could note their many and varied achievements. A reverend, doctor, lawyer, military rank, or an early settler of a town. So, in that vein of wanting to be remembered and utilizing the epitaph as the ultimate and final billboard to a life's work, many stones included a few extra lines of text about the person or a notable event in which they were involved. Occasionally, however, you do see some humdingers. Such is the case with the stone of the Honorable Benjamin Carpenter Esquire in the Carpenter Cemetery in Guilford, Vermont. First, the stone itself is over five feet tall by two and a half feet wide. It's huge. And it's covered from top to bottom with writing, listing his accomplishments. He was born in 1726, was a magistrate in Rhode Island, a public teacher of righteousness, whatever that means, an able advocate to his last for democracy and the equal rights of man. He moved to Guilford in 1770, was a field officer in the Revolutionary War, a founder of the first constitution of Vermont, was a governor, a counselor of censors, a member of the council, lieutenant governor, a firm professor of Christianity of the Baptist Church for 50 years, and left this world with 146 persons of lineal paternity to his name. Stature, about 6 feet, weight, 200 pounds. Okay, suffice to say, this guy did some shit. And while the aforementioned right Honorable Benjamin Carpenter's gravestone documents his litany of social, military, political, and frankly, graphic, procreational accomplishments, his wife Amy is identified as the wife of Benjamin Carpenter, and only her date of death and age are noted. 
No credit to her for actually having carried and given birth to their 11 children, resulting in the said 146 members of Benjamin Carpenter's progeny. So, these stones can show us the reality of the gender class system in society. Men were identified by their outside accomplishments, and women were identified and ranked solely on their achievements within the domestic sphere of service. Mrs. Susanna Burton, wife of Ensign Alicia Burton, she was an obliging wife, a tender mother, and a sincere Christian. This gender disparity holds true for Relief's epitaph as well. It reads, In memory of Mrs. Relief, wife of Captain David D. Town, died January 17, 1813, aged 45 years. There were no individual references to her accomplishments, only that she was someone's wife. This is highlighted by the fact that Relief's name is set all in caps, as is the name of her husband, seeming to give David equal, if not greater, importance on a monument meant to commemorate Relief. If the woman was of age and unfortunate enough to die before she was married, her status as such was highlighted with the moniker Miss and she was identified through her parentage. Miss Anna, daughter of Captain John and Mrs. Mehitable Burroughs, who died in the 18th year of her age. And at a time where death was ever-present for all, many people remarried after a spouse died. Since a woman's identity was directly tied to her marital status, that information is often included on her epitaph. Sometimes it will actually say she was so-and-so's second wife. If a woman didn't remarry after her husband died, her stone might say, Widow Sarah Haskell. Or she might be referred to by the archaic and denigrating term, relict. For a woman, being married was the ultimate social achievement. Unmarried women had a lower social rank than those who were married, and widowed women had a lower social rank than those whose husbands were alive. Their survival depended on who around them died and who would marry them. Imposing a social weight upon them that was never in their power to control, but was theirs alone to bear, even in death. If ever you needed examples of institutional patriarchy, Ugh. Erg. One of the things I love about turn-of-the-19th-century epitaphs is that they can get surprisingly specific about how somebody died, especially when it was from something unexpected, like an acute illness or an accident. Causes of accidental death I've come across include falling from a horse, being drowned in a river, falling from a bridge, crushed by a tree fall, struck by lightning, and being crushed under a gristmill stone. One notable gravestone in the Broad Street Cemetery in Claremont, New Hampshire, documents in detail the deaths of brothers Chester and Alicia Putnam, who passed away overnight in January of 1814. They 
were in the same bed found suffocated, a kettle of common coals having been placed in their room for their comfort, proved the fatal instrument of their death. Carbon monoxide poisoning. And of course, this being an age of very limited medical knowledge or ability, sudden illnesses or medical events were common, but still came as no less of a shock to people, which is evidenced by the fact that those causes are often called out in an epitaph. Spotted fever, stroke, seizures, or some unknown medical ailment that struck without warning. But by far, the most common cause of sudden death reflected on epitaphs is one that actually goes unnamed. Death from complications in childbirth. Give a quick study of graves within a family and do the math. You can usually put the pieces together. If a woman and baby die fairly close in time, could be days, weeks, or months after a birth, and are buried together or in close proximity, childbirth complications are a safe assumption. And sometimes the epitaph will tell you outright. Mrs. Prudence Osgood died 1812, their stillborn babe buried on her arm. And drawing out that thread, childbirth was historically, and is increasingly so in our modern era, a dangerous undertaking for a woman. And though high infant, childhood, and maternal mortality was common at the turn of the 19th century, it was still an event that was regarded with sadness and despair. And no gravestone exhibits those sentiments better with its epitaph and its art than that of the marker of Rebecca Park in the Burgess Cemetery in Grafton, Vermont. Rebecca's stone is very special for many reasons. It's what's called a double stone, a style that was often used when a family experienced multiple deaths in quick succession. It was larger than an average gravestone, providing extra space to include information about all of the deceased. Rebecca's husband commissioned master carver Moses Wright Jr. of the Wright School of Carvers in Rockingham, Vermont, to make this monument to his family after the death of one of their two children, Thomas Park Jr., who passed away in 1804. Rebecca had died the year before, so Thomas took the opportunity to commemorate his son and his wife with one stone. But what really makes this gravestone special is the story its art tells about Rebecca. This double stone is one piece of slate with two tympani, with information about Rebecca on the right and the information about her family on the left, connected with a shared shoulder in the middle. The motif design is very typical of the Wright School of Carvers and that of Moses Wright in particular. On Rebecca's side of the stone, she's depicted with a round-faced soul effigy set in a rectangle, representing her in her coffin, with vines or willow branches emanating from the top of the rectangle. On the shared shoulder between the two double stones is a little round face, 
representing her recently deceased son, Thomas Park Jr. And on the second tympanum is a tree of life, simply carved with a squiggly line in the middle for the trunk, and then 13 squiggly lines radiating around the trunk, representing tree branches. Each of the 13 branches ends in a small, round face, representing Rebecca and Thomas Sr.'s 13 pre-deceased infants. According to an informational pamphlet by the Grafton, Vermont Historical Society, called Releasing Rebecca, Rebecca had given birth to 15 children by the time of her death in 1803 at age 40. Only two survived for more than a few days. Son Hezekiah was the only one to survive into adulthood. The art on Rebecca Park's stone punches you in the gut. It's emotional to even hear about a woman who had given birth to and lost 13 infants. But it's quite something else altogether to see it dictated to you in these simply executed, delicate, somber graphics. This art expresses enormous love and sadness, which is not diminished in the 215-odd years since its creation. This art also inspires a moment of awe. Right from the beginning, I was impressed by the sheer artistry of Relief Wilcox Town's gravestone. It's beautifully carved, certainly, but as I've mentioned before, the design is so interesting, so different, so evocative, so deliberate, that I'm just as interested in the mind that came up with this design as the design itself. This person was an artist. I am not an artist, so hearing me wax philosophical about art makes about as much sense as asking a Tyrannosaurus Rex to make pickles. In part because both the T-Rex and I lack the manual dexterity to perform our respective theoretical jobs. Plus, T-Rexes are carnivores and really wouldn't be interested in eating pickles, so why would they make them? And, you know, even if they did want to eat them, they could open the pickle jar, but they could never get the pickles in their mouth. Unless they teamed up and used, like, you know, giant sticks and stuck the pickles on the end of them and fed each other? That's an idea. No, anyway. Who better to help us understand an artist than another artist? I brought my case of the beautiful and inscrutable gravestone to the drawing studio in Brattleboro, Vermont, to get the opinions and impressions from real artists. The drawing studio's owner, Jason Alden, and studio members Lauren Watros and Paul Bowen were kind enough to sit through a little history lesson on gravestone motif evolution in New England before taking a look at Relief Wilcox Town's gravestone. And I think their reaction upon seeing the stone for the first time speaks for itself. 
And town as a last name. Oh my last God. Name. So this was I've never seen anything like this one. Oh my so, God. Just a little bit about <laughs> oh, yeah, incredible. it's like off the charts cool. Yeah. Uh, so just a little bit about her 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 personal history. I was curious what they could deduce about the artistic process the meaning of the design based on their experience of knowing and understanding and examining how and why a piece of art is created. For, at the heart of art, lies intent and choices, the final product being a mix of the influences from the artist and their place in time and space. What does this piece, with its bold, unique design, say to an artist? First is Lauren Watros, commenting on her overall impressions of the emotion of the design, followed by Jason Alden, addressing the decision and process of making the focal point of the piece empty space. And the tree is like fallen in the prime of its <laughs> yeah. life, kind yeah. of. I mean, she was she wasn't she was forty five, which yeah. is yeah. old, I suppose. But if you've had it's just that's a really personal yeah. stone. Yeah. It's almost trying to say more than what, that's some Did, emotion right there. It's interesting too, because the subject of it visually is the empty space, the, the loss, the, it's gone, right? It was previously there filling the space and now it's just all that activity is framing empty space. But no, um, that feels like it reinforces the idea of the, you know, the physicality of the willow being dead, but then this sort of, uh, this presence mm. beyond that, in that empty space. Because mm-hmm. that's a lot of work for nothing. Paul Bowen and Lauren go on to identify some connections they see between the execution of this design and the folk art traditions that would have existed in every small New England town at the time of Relief's death. Silhouette portraiture and the embroidery work girls and young women did to create samplers hand-stitched panels of numbers, letters, and two-dimensional scenes that showcased their sewing abilities. Motif. Yeah, but I I think more of folk art, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of, like, uh, silhouettes, you know, your black silhouettes that were framed and little figures with top hats and horses and... There was also samplers, like there was a lot of sewing being done yeah. then too, yes. which See, where they were all symbolizing makes more sense things to into me. a grid. That's, and, yes. Yeah. Yes. Kind of, um, like you say, kind of like everyone was touching that, those um, materials and those motifs at some point because it was kind of going through their education. It was like right. a very basic. Yeah. Right. And the yeah. wall And finally, the group comes back around to the emotion of Relief's gravestone design, comparing it with the uniformity of the styles that came right after, dominated by the willow and urn motif. But that distinct difference between like the urn era and then mm. having botanicals and and then going as far as to like represent the moon like that, I mean, those are distinctly different periods in our yeah, yeah. Like this is history. so much more interesting than all that urn stuff. You know, <laughs> it really is, yeah. This gets to me, anyway. 
The urns are really serious. Yeah, they're. <laughs> <laughs> imagine so interesting how because that those urn shapes like they didn't hold any feeling for the person at all. No, but these do. Like it's, all yeah. the things do. It's so just how the intention yeah. translates. Yeah. Into shaping. Yeah. You know. Well, how much we're comfortable with sharing the personal, I think, might relate to it at any given time. I mean, if it's if it's not cool to share the personal at a certain right. time. Then yeah, right. that's exactly. And, like, and yeah, it gets cool, into you know. marketing. And you could have one like the Joneses down the block that had a serious and yeah. noble art. Not that peasant <laughs> shit. Yeah, peasant's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that did happen. I think Jason, Lauren, and Paul really hit on some very important points. This design is definitely about emotion. From the explicit use of empty space to emphasize loss and literal emptiness, and the broken or cut willow, referring to a life cut short. It all speaks to a very specific time at the turn of the 19th century, when expressing emotion publicly with gravestone art had first become acceptable. And it sits in stark contrast to the period just before it, dominated by skulls, bones, and coffins, and is different from the time after it, where the universal use of the willowen urn meant conformity, devoid of anything personal or emotional whatsoever. And from their experience as artists and knowledge of art history, this design had a more localized, homegrown feel to them, reminiscent of some of those other aforementioned types of folk art, created by artists who worked within their communities and shared its history and values. Folk art is local art. I don't know about all of you, but right about now, I could use a break. Part three here was supposed to be the final installment of episode six, but as I got to laying everything out, there was just way too much content to fit comfortably into one show. I decided to break it up into two. And now part four will finally, finally conclude episode six, Awe. So, hit the john, get a refill of whatever beverage makes listening to this stuff tolerable, I suggest gin, and come back. Let's wrap this bitch up. A special thanks to my interviewees, artists Jason Alden, Lauren Watros, and Paul Bowen of The Drawing Studio, in Brattleboro, Vermont. If you'd like more information about the drawing studio, check out their website, vermontdrawingstudio.com. Jennifer Vanell of Badger Studios for musical arrangement and performance. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Radio Public.